2 Samuel chapter 4. We'll pick up where we left off. Wednesday nights, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Old Testament, we find ourselves in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 4 this evening. Now, Heavenly Father, we always ask your blessing. May the power of the Holy Spirit touch our hearts <laughs> and uh, still our hearts before you, Lord, and speak to us. You have something to say. Encourage our hearts, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a long and arduous journey for David from the sheepfold when he was just, a, as the Bible calls him, a ruddy teenager back in those days, all the way to Israel's throne, and uh, as the Lord had promised through Samuel. Now, it's been about 14 or 15 long years, David waiting, hoping, longing, and enduring, and it still really hasn't fully happened yet. It will happen tonight in our study. Um, King Saul has been dead. He died on the battlefield, as you recall. And uh, the men of Judah anoint David as their king. So he is king, but only over his own home tribe. His home state has made him head and king. And so they've anointed him. He's king of Judah. That's southern uh, Israel. The northern tribes are the 11 other tribes that even though they know that uh, David should be king, they're resisting uh, until tonight. Um, because of one man, Saul's general, Abner, a well-respected and well-known war hero, uh, he's got his own best interests in mind. And so instead of helping David to ascend to the throne and transfer the kingdom from uh, the, the house of Saul to the house of David, uh, he wants to keep his position and his honor, and he's got a woman uh, there on Saul's side so that he just doesn't want the change to happen. So with his influence, he has stopped the 11 tribes for seven and a half years of coming over to make David their king. And so as we've seen, this General Abner has propped up Saul's only surviving son, Ish-shobeth is his name, and it means shameful man. It's probably a nickname because uh, he's a weak man, and uh, the Bible really has nothing good to say about him. But uh, here in slide one, you'll remember uh, we kind of divided it up so that you can have easy access because a lot of names are going back and forth. King Ishobeth is Saul's son, and General Abner is, is now really leading Israel. And so it's them versus King David and General Joab and the two brothers of Joab. We, all three of them, as you see and recall, are David's nephews. One of them has died. And you'll see, uh, not yet, but Asahel has already uh, been killed. Now, uh, this struggle between the houses has gone on for seven and a half years. But as I said, it's coming to an end in tonight's study. And so God's promise, and they're always good, even though they, they will always come to pass. God's word always is true. Uh, it took 25 years with Abraham and Sarah 
25 long years. And so God, you know, as many of us have figured out, his time clock and our schedule uh, sometimes are a little bit different. Amen? (laughs) Have you noticed that? So uh, the last chapter that we saw, Abner got fed up uh, with weak-willed Ishobeth, even though General Abner is the one who propped this this Saul's son up, you know, but he got really angry with him and defected to David last week. Now, or he tried to, uh, David received him, even though he'd been in trouble for seven and a half years leading the opposition. David said, sit down, let's break bread. Let's make peace. Let me hear your heart. You know, this is the kind of guy that David uh, is and was. And so uh, David's... Uh, But David's general, Joab, he wasn't going to have any of that, was he? There wasn't room in this town for two generals, especially since Joab's kid brother uh, lost his life at the hands of Abner. So unbeknownst to David, Joab and his brother Abishai deceive unsuspecting Abner, you remember this last week, and murder him to avenge the death of their brother Asahel. So are we on slide two? So we can cross out. Abner killed Asahel. And now the next slide. Do we have a next slide? Is that all of them? Oh, okay, I didn't see that. Well, by by this time, they're all crossed out anyway, 3,000 years later. But... uh, (laughs) Eventually, your name gets crossed out. You know, that's how it goes. Uh, So let me get this right. Abner killed Asahel by really self-defense. And then, now, uh, Abner gets, no helping me, it gets more confusing. (laughs) Abner gets really mad at Ishboeth and goes over to David's side. Once he's over to David's side, Joab says, this is the guy who killed Asahel, my brother. So Joab and Abishai kill Abner, all right? And so now that Abner's out of this scene, Ishbosheth is vulnerable because Abner really was the man who held the 11 tribes together. And so with that, you can see tonight, uh, spoiler, sorry, uh, Ishbosheth is going to be crossed out, <laughs> as you see. And so uh, that, that was meant to help you there. Now, uh, uh, as I said, uh, once news gets to David that Joab has killed Abner, uh, David wisely, fast and furiously, uh, goes to do damage control Because everything's threatened now. Israel, all 11 tribes, sent Abner over. Uh, Abner kind of wooed them and said, hey, let's make peace with this David. And then he comes back, sorry, in a body bag. And so uh, David does everything he can to distance himself from these these nephews of his who did the uh, revenge killing so that all the 11 tribes don't think that David was behind that. You know, it's an important task of any Christian leader, really, to do damage control. Uh, Usually it's the self-centeredness and pride of the one or two people uh, that can threaten the good and peace of the many. 
So David knows he has to do that. So he leads the mourning for Abner. He publicly distances himself from his vigilante nephews and he denounces their deeds and he honors Abner's life of all things. Because here's the guy who really was frustrating David's uh, ascension to the throne. And yet uh, David honors his life. Uh, Matthew 5 and verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. David really is a peacemaker. He's got that spirit about him. He wants people to sit down and to share in the joy of the Lord. So here we go with the context for diving into chapter 4. David lets all Israel know, I, I I held no grudges, no axe to grind, uh, have no chip on my shoulder. By the way, he's mourning for Abner. He's telling the 11 tribes, look, I loved Saul. Really, I loved Jonathan. I liked Abner. We became friends. We had a meal together. I had high hopes. So I mourned. I cried at his funeral. You know, I married Saul's uh, daughter. And I'm married to her to this day, me call. So he's trying to reach out to the 11 tribes and say, look at, look at, I want an administration built on grace, forgiveness, mercy, and love. I'm not mad at anybody, even though really he had a perfect right to be upset with how he was treated. He's going to take the higher road. He's going to be like Christ and he's going to live in mercy and extend grace and build on that grace. David is never driven by fear. He is never threatened by men. He's secure in in God, and he knows God's will for his life will prevail. Therefore, he doesn't really have enemies. He, He turns his enemies over to the Lord. It's like, God, what do they have to do with my life? You prevail. And so he, he, he gives his, even his enemies up to God in faith, and he discounts them. Therefore, he's free to have love in his heart for everybody because it's really not about them. It's about the Lord. And so now in chapter 4, uh, as we've said, the real power behind Israel's throne was not Ish-shobeth. It was this Abner. So Ishobeth was the puppet king. The puppet master is dead. So without the puppeteer to pull the strings, the puppet is going to fall to the ground uh, helpless. So that's what we're going to see tonight. Uh, Ishobeth is going to get crossed out. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, He lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Banna, and the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimon, the Berothite. That's kind of a funny place to be from, wherever. Uh, From the tribe of Benjamin. Now Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin. Benjamin, because the people of Beeroth fled to Gataim and have lived there as aliens to this day. So now more by the way information, verse 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. 
His nurse, his nanny, picked him up and fled when they got the news, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, that, we'll, we'll, note, we'll pause there, and I'll explain why that is put in there as we get to it. So let's pause. First, for note-takers, you can say we will meet the assassins now. So here we see that fear has taken hold of the king of Israel, Ishobeth, and also uh, all of Israel, and well, it should, because Abner's gone. The five-star general, the decorated war hero, the commander-in-chief, the guy who fights all the, the wars and the, protects Israel, the chief architect of Israel's governance is off the scene. And in the Hebrew, it says that Ish, uh, Ishbosheth is his hands become limp in the Hebrew. He just is perfect because, you know, uh, like the puppet Pinocchio, uh, Ishobeth knows he's nothing without Geppetto. You know, Geppetto was the guy pulling the strings, right? And so that's exactly whatever. That's all right. Last time I go to Disney for the evening. <laughs> and, and so uh, the onlooking audience, Israel, also uh, loses faith because that's their whole deal. Uh, who's going to fight our battles? Uh, so Ishbosheth loses courage, and all of the 11 tribes become alarmed. In the Hebrew, Israel is shaken. They're thinking, who's going to fight our battles? Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. Two brothers of Jonathan are dead. Abner's dead. The whole purpose of Israel wanting a king in the first place was what? We want a king. First Samuel chapter 8. We want a king who will be like all the other nations uh, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Now, without Abner, that's not going to happen. So there's a power vacuum and enter the brother assassins. Verse 2. Introducing the ones who are going to address this dilemma, uh, Banna and, and Rechab, or whatever his name, however it's pronounced. These two are two of Ishbosheth's lesser military commanders. Uh, they decide to use the king's uh, reversal of fortunes for their own advantage. In verse 2, we see what their responsibility was. They were over the raiding parties. The raiding parties were uh, the, the army, the section of the army that went out and raided and looted the enemy's camps and, and kind of funded the Israelite government and military by taking all of that plunder. Now, these two treasonous rascals, they think, okay, let's kill our loser king even though they're Benjamites as well, and the text is careful to point that out to you, that these guys are treasonous. They come from the same family as Ishabeth, and you would think that they would be loyal. But they say, okay, uh, you know what? The tide has turned. We want to be on the winning team, and that's all that matters to us. And so we're going to do away with this loser king. We'll ingratiate ourselves to King David, no doubt, going to be the next king. So if we destroy the guy who King David probably hates and wants off the scene, then, you know, no doubt there'll be a reward for us. Now, there are the kinds of people who think, how can we take 
the misfortunes of others and benefit from them ourselves. And uh, David knows better than to surround himself with these kinds of questionable people with their questionable character. Uh, Psalm 1, blessed is the, the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Choose your friends uh, wisely. David knows better. Choose your working relationships with discernment because often these connections will make or break you. Now, since Ishbosheth's death is central to the chapter, there's a little parenthesis here in verse 4 that just lets you know, by the way, there is somebody else who could be a contender for the throne of Saul, and it would be Jonathan's boy. But Jonathan's boy at the reading of this text is only 12. Since he was crippled at five, and now it's been seven and a half years, he's in junior high, but he's crippled. So, so he's disqualified. So there's nobody left really in Saul's house, and that's why you got that, by the way, information. Uh, it's also important because Mephibosheth, his name, the boy who cannot walk, he is going to uh, shape the chapters to come. And so we needed to hear a little bit about him. Verses 5 to 7 now. We've met the assassins. Now we're going to see the deed. Now Rechab and Bana set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and his brother Bana slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, and they stabbed and killed him. They cut off his head, taking it with them. They traveled all night by the way of Arabah. Well, I hope that you have all had your dinner. <laughs> And, or maybe I should say, I hope you haven't had your dinner. Uh, all right, so number two, now the deed is done. We've met the assassins, and now we see what they've done. Uh, the dastardly deed, wow. If it's true that great minds think alike, it's also true that devious minds think alike as well. Um, one writer put it this way, the most beloved tool in Satan's arsenal is deceit and trickery by which all the devil's children do their dirty work. So as Joab, you remember, and Joab's brother Abishai, they wanted to, to kill uh, Abner, and so they, they deceived him. They sent a little posse after him and said, hey, man, David forgot something. Would you mind coming all the way back? And he comes back unsuspecting and... Uh, then Joab says, hey, buddy, come on over here. Got something for you. Yeah, he had something for him and shivved him in the stomach there. And uh, the R&B brothers uh, are, it's a lot so easier to say that than pronounce their names. The assassins are, uh, use the same kind of thing. Uh, they say, they tell the what, small royal residents probably, they say, hey, we're here to pick up some wheat. So they use a little deception. They get into the house. They have free access. And uh, they get into the royal residence. They make their way into the king's bedroom 
where they knew in the heat of the day in that part of the world it gets really, really hot, and they take siestas, and he's, you know, down, vulnerable, without recourse, in his jammies, whatever, he's unprotected. And uh, they stab him in his bed to death and remove his head to provide proof uh, of the monarch's death. You know, evil people are just spineless cowards. It, it doesn't surprise me in the list that uh, John gives us in Revelation, uh, talking about those who perish. The, the first description in the list there in Revelation, we're coming up to the verse, actually. And, and it describes this whole group of evildoers, but the first word is cowards. Cowards, number one. Those who perish, the first word that comes to mind is cowards. They're afraid to face the truth. They're afraid of everything. They're afraid of good. They're afraid of the light. They can't come because they can't, don't want their deeds exposed. They're afraid of doing God's will. They're afraid of dying to self. They're just cowards. And we see that in these two. But uh, though they do their evil deeds, they'll always get their just desserts in this life or the life to come. And we're going to see that too tonight. So in the meantime... Uh, in this, they get their gruesome trophy in hand, and they make haste with it, and they travel all night long through this way that they escape 30 miles to Hebron to see David. And they're, they're looking forward to a warm, uh, rich reception. I mean, after all, they got the prize, and they're going to unveil it and show King David, hey, David, guess what we brought to you? It's in this little box, and they're all, they just can't wait because they're going to, in their eyes, they got the little dollar signs, you know, the shekel signs, the little cha-ching, <laughs> that they're going to get something out of this, and they are. Oh, they are. They're going to get something, but it's a surprise <laughs> for them, not to us. We've already read ahead. Now, uh, the bad guys, as they often do, they've made some major miscalculations and some lethal ones at that. Let's read 8 to 12. So they bring the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. They say to the king, Here is the head of King Ishbosheth, son of Saul, by the way, who's your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day, the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. David answered Rechab and his brother Bana, the sons of blah, 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 as surely, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all my troubles, when a man told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed? Should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? Well, their eyes got about this big. <laughs> Can you imagine? What a surprise. Instead of, you know, silver and gold and a position in my kingdom, you know, I, I suppose once they heard him taking an oath, as surely as God lives, they thought, uh-oh, this isn't going to go good. Let's finish up. So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and their feet and hung their bodies by the pool in Hebron. 
Lovely. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. So we've met the assassins. Uh, we've seen the, the deed, or we should c- call it the misdeed, and now the consequences of that evil deed. Now, the boys here have reaped what they have sowed. Now, you remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, an overly aggressive apostle Peter uh, took out a sword and uh, disconnected Malchus's ear from his head. And after he did that, Jesus picked it up off of the ground, you know, got all the pine needles off of it or whatever, and he put it back on his head. That's how I picture it happening. And then he says to Peter, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So, you know, the sword sometimes is necessary. We all know that, and Jesus wasn't afraid to say that. But those who use it as a way to get what they want often get more than they bargained for. And so, uh, like the foolish Amalekite in chapter 1 that we're called our attention to here, who thought he was bringing David some good news, he thought he was in for a handsome reward, that Amalekite, but his plan backfired. Now again, a major backfire for these two R&B brothers. Uh, Proverbs 26 put it this way, because you listen to their speech and they've got justifications. They sound so godly and, and right and so wonderful. Proverbs 26 says, smooth words may hide a wicked heart, just as pretty glaze covers a clay pot. People may cover their hatred with pleasant words, but they're deceiving you. They pretend to be kind, but don't believe them. Their hearts are full of many evils. While their hatred may be concealed by trickery, their wrongdoing will be exposed in public. If you set a trap for others, you'll be caught in it yourself. If you roll a boulder down on others, it will crush you instead. And this is kind of what we see happening here to these two men. Despite their smooth words, these brothers have made several costly miscalculations. Uh, Number one, they think to themselves the ends justify the means. In other words, David should be king. We all know that. It's God's will that David be king. All Israel knows it. Ishbosheth is in the way, so let's just kill him. That's their thinking. Well, we accomplished God's will. See now, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Ishabeth, the hindrance to God's will is gone. The opposition to God's man removed and David's free to reign. Praise the Lord. Uh, In the text it says, and that's what they're saying. They're saying we were the instruments God used to take down this guy so that you could be king. Here's what they say. This day, David The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. So, by the way, they're saying God, first of all, David, God is behind this. Uh, uh, When in doubt, by the way, attribute all your actions to God. And, you know, somehow he always gets blamed for everything. And uh, he's, uh, he's, they're saying he's used us. Uh, as your humble servants to accomplish his holy will 
and glad to be of service, sire. You know, where, where do you want this? Where do you want us to put this? On, on the mantle? You know, I don't know. Uh, but in God's economy, and this is important, uh, the means have to be as godly as the end. So if God's will is the goal, then it must be accomplished in God-honoring ways. I was teaching a class in the East Bay, the secular college. It wasn't the seminary. And uh, we were talking about an armored car that had tipped over on Highway 4. And the doors opened up and the cash was blowing everywhere there in the East Bay. And one of the young men said that he wished that, that he was driving behind that and he would stop and really make a killing. It would just be so wonderful. And I said, that would be stealing. And he said, are you kidding me? I would pick up that cash and I would say, thank you, Jesus, because God would be meeting all my needs. <laughs> and I said, you know, I have a problem with that because the one who said thou shalt not steal uh, doesn't bless or endorse those who steal. Well, then there was a whole argument in the whole class about, you know, is it really stealing? I mean, because you really found it, you know, it was just even though you knew and you see the doors flowing like open and all of that. Uh, yeah. So, you know what? God never achieves his purposes through lies, deceit, flattery, or any other despicable way. A little lie on the resume may have gotten you the job that you thought that you, God wanted you to have, or a little cheating or cutting quarters here and there, and then you, you suddenly have the provision that you know that God had for you, or whatever it is, it just, and here's a profound thought, it, it never is right to do something wrong. Now, I know that is really profound, and I, I'm going to repeat it to you, because even though you laugh, uh, we all don't get that. And if we did, our lives would be a lot less complicated. It is never right to do anything God calls wrong. There's no blessing in it. There's just no blessing in it at all. You can't get the legitimate uh, when you do it in an illegitimate way. Now, the second mistake, they assume David is as twisted as they are. Now, they say, oh, great king, uh, this guy has caused you trouble. You must hate him. Uh, this guy has commanded an army that has killed some of your men. You must want revenge, we're thinking, you know, like we would. You must be filled with hate and bitterness and anger like we would be. So we're just projecting our own sinful brokenness onto you and just think that you're going to receive us well because, wow, you think like us. You're like us, right? Well, no. So they say, here's the head of somebody and, and listen to what they're doing. They're describing uh, how he, David should be happy. So, number one, here's the head of Saul's son. You know, Saul was your enemy, right? Well, Saul considered David his enemy, but David never considered Saul his enemy. He always had respect for the office of the king. And there was something about Saul, maybe because he was Jonathan's father, or maybe because they started off 
with a good relationship. There was something about Saul that even though he's trying to kill David, David uh, did not consider him the enemy. But they want to just bring that up and say, oh, by the way, this is Saul's son. You must despise him like we would, right? And then number two, he says, uh, it's your enemy. So, okay, we've already been down this road. David really doesn't have enemies. He just has people who don't don't appreciate and love him as much as he should be. Uh, But he gives them over to the Lord. You know, the enemies aren't a big deal to him. And thirdly, they think, well, and by the way, we have the head of the one who, quote, tried to take your life. So if you're anything like us, unregenerated, sinful uh, two brothers, uh, then you would want to take his life. Right, so have we checked all the boxes? This is God's doing. Glory, hallelujah. This is a guy who's related to Saul, that terrible man, your enemy, check, and also the guy who tried to kill you several times. Boom, boom, boom. There, uh, just to make sure that when you open the box, you're going to be happy. We just had to remind you of all of that. And by the way, we are your humble servants because you are our Lord and King. Did you see that too? So flattery, smooth talk, but unfortunately the answer comes back, no, no, no. Wrong on all accounts. Uh, They underestimated David's loyalty to God. You know, like Joseph when, uh, what's her name? Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, you know, tries to get Joseph uh, into bed with her. And he says, how could you ask me to sin against God? You see, this is the way that David thinks. This is the way he thinks. Um, he has an, he's loyal to God and God's ways, and he's repulsed, even though it's going to kind of benefit him. He's repulsed by it because it was cold-blooded murder. So it doesn't matter if it's going to benefit him or not. He's looking at the deed as what it is. And, and they underestimate that um, he has made a promise to Saul. Remember Saul and him had it out there in the wilderness. And, and Saul said, I know someday you're going to be king. Only show kindness to my family. And David said, I swear it. Like, don't come in and when it's your turn to reign to wipe out my whole house. So he said, I, you've got it. I won't. Oh, these, these boys don't understand that. And David's heart, David's heart prizes mercy and love and grace. You know, bitterness, hate, and vengeance has a really hard time to grow in a spirit-filled heart. It just really has a hard time. You know, you remember in, in biology class when those little Petri dishes, you know, and then you, you touch it with some microscopic germ or something or mold, and then you'd come in in a couple of days and it'd be like, you know, all fuzzed over with the grossest uh, display of mold you ever want to see, purple, greens, and all kinds of colors under the rainbow. Um, you know what? That's Some people's hearts are like that. But when the Holy Spirit is in your heart, those kinds of germs, those kinds of sins, those kinds of wounds that turn and fester and grow into bitterness and vengeance and all of that, when you have the Spirit in your life, David's a worshiper. He's a worshiper. He comes into God's presence. He lifts lifts up his hands. His countenance is lit up. He loves the Lord. and, And the Holy Spirit deals with those things. He meditates on God's words day and night as Psalm 1. He wrote that one. 
Here's the psychology of evil that's going through these two heads. Um, Slanderers speak bad about others because they like to hear others torn down, so they gladly make sure you get an earful. In other words, gossips enjoy hearing everybody's personal business, and so they suspect you do too, that you're like them. And so they give you, you know, they fill your ears with yummy little rumors that are like delicious little tidbits that sink down into your heart. And and they like to hear about somebody's failure, so they think that you want to hear that. That's why they're telling you. They think you're just like them. And you are, unless you tell them, you know what, I'm uncomfortable with this conversation. You know, can we, or can we change the subject now? You see, so that's the mistake they've made. So these guys would hate and want to kill anyone who gets in their way, advancing uh, the, in, in their position in power. So therefore, they think that David thinks the same way. And what a surprise. David's not like Saul. He's not like Rahab and his brother. He, uh, he's not like the fallen world. He's not like every other sinner. He's like the Lord because he hangs out with the Lord. And what a surprise that must have been. So time for the boomerang to come full circle. Time for the boulder to roll back upon them. Time for Psalm 7 and verse 15 to happen. He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he or she has made. So only in this case, it will be they'll fall into the pit that they have made. So allow me to paraphrase this little delightful uh, monologue of David's. David takes an oath in verse uh, 9. So help me God, he says, the one who's brought me safe thus far. You know what? I didn't need your help. It's God who brought me this far. You, You know what? You think you're helping God out? You're helping me out? In fact, how disappointed is David in this? He spent his entire adult life not making it happen, not manipulating, holding back, and letting God put him on the throne. And here these guys come in and, and, and take it into their own hands. So he says, he says, so help me, God, the one who's brought me safe thus far. You guys are in for it now. And let me tell you why. Once a guy came to me with what he thought was good news. Saul is dead, he tells me, with a silly little smile on his face. You know what his reward was? I seized him and had him executed. That's what I thought of his good news. Now, if he was put to death for something that took place on a battlefield of war, where men are aware of potential risks and and expect such things, how much more do you too deserve to die when you sneak into an unsuspecting man's bedroom who hasn't done you any wrong or harm and murder him in cold blood in his own bed? Doesn't it make sense that we should rid the earth of both of you scoundrels and bring justice to that poor man? Amen? That's kind of what it sounded like to me. So notice, David doesn't accept the evil deed, though, uh, even though it seemed to have helped him. And we talked about that. Uh, it's, it's just really important to do things God's way. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan put it this way. While it is true that God overrules the affairs of men and compels them ultimately to serve his higher purposes, 
It is equally true that no servant of his can ever consent to do evil that may come to good. It is an arresting truth that our Lord in the last days of his earthly ministry would not accept the testimony of the demons. It is a truth we would do well to remember in the smallest particulars of our life and service. In Mark 1 and verse 34, Jesus silenced the demons who were being cast out because they knew who he was. Why did he do that? They were speaking the truth. Well, first of all, they're not credible because they may speak a little truth, but they lie a lot, too. And that's generally what they do. So Jesus doesn't want them talking. They're not credible, nor does God ever need the attestation of evil to prove of that he's doing something true and good. And so the jig is up for these guys. Their guilt is exposed. So the brother hitmen team, the brothers are put to death. Um, like the demons, their testimony, even the true parts, rejected, not credible. They're put to death. The hands and the feet thing, war, war is hell. Um, by the way, theologically speaking, hell is a lot worse than war. Uh, but the hands that killed innocent men, a man, and the feet that escaped justice are really what's in focus there. Deuteronomy 21 talks about the body being hung like that to show the whole thing is to show that this was cold-blooded murder and they were under God's judgment and God's curse. Deuteronomy 21 talks about those kinds of things. Uh, in contrast, Ishbosheth, his remains are honored and buried. So let's just finish on an up note, if you don't mind, you know, the hands and the feet and the head, you know, head, shoulders, knees and toes. It's just not good. Let's go to chapter five and just read just the P.S. here. So all the tribes of Israel came to David. Now, all the 11 come to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood in the past. While Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a, a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. This would be the third time he's anointed and finally it's the real deal. David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years in Hebron. He reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So kind of a happy ending for someone who trusted and obeyed. So the promise long last is realized 15 years. It's time. All 11 tribes now come over where the one tribe already, Judah, has anointed David. They realize Saul's out of contenders for the throne. And more than that, four things that really facilitate, finally, David sitting on the throne of Israel. Number one, his past record spoke for him. Uh, David was famous for being a courageous warrior and he'd saved Israel many times. Goliath is one of those incidents. Uh, number two, the, uh, the, word, the Holy Spirit spoke for him. There was a prophetic revelation given. David's destiny as Israel's future king was something that was always weaving in and out of the text. First Samuel 16 said that. Number three, Abner's, Abner's endorsement. So prominent men spoke for him. 
That was important back in chapter 3 and verses 9 and 10. And then finally, David's respectful treatment of the slain leaders from Saul's side. Um, His character. All of Israel saw that David uh, stood away from evildoers, didn't have a chip on his shoulder, and and really treated Saul's uh, fallen leaders with respect writing songs for Saul and Jonathan and mourning for them and Abner as well. And so the Lord was with David, but more importantly, now he's going to sit on the throne of Israel, all of Israel, and rule for for 40 years until he's 70 years old and be the greatest king that Israel had ever known. Godly character, a solid reputation, practical wisdom, and really I see a pattern here to achieve or to see God's promise fulfilled in your life. Five words, waiting, obeying, trusting, growing, enduring. And when he was done with that, it was waiting, obeying, trusting, growing, and enduring. And then when he got done with that cycle, It was waiting, obeying, trusting, growing, and enduring. And then finally, (laughs) when everything looked good, it came down to waiting, obeying, trusting, growing, and enduring. The last scripture, Hebrews 6.11. We want each of you to show the same kind of diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what have been promised. What about you tonight? What about your hopes and your dreams, the promises God has placed in your heart? Through every challenge and trial and defeat and loss and turn of events, through every promise God has made and every word spoken, are you waiting, obeying, trusting, growing, and enduring? So if you do, you'll find yourself uh, fulfilling and seeing fulfilled God's best promises for your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful. We just pray that you'd help us to faithfully endure, to trust, Lord, especially when we can't see you working and when it looks in our lives like something else is going on or like the enemy is prevailing or, or that your, your will isn't coming to pass. Help us, Father, to, to look past the things that we can see and to the things that are unseen. For you have said in your word that things that we can see are temporary, they're temporal, but the unseen things are what we should be looking at in faith because they're eternal. Help us by your spirit to fix our gaze upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. For it's in doing so that we have peace and grants us the ability to be waiting and obeying, trusting, growing, and enduring. In Jesus' name, amen.